This is the Creative Code Budapest podcast. Uh, my name is Declan Hannigan, and the goal of our Creative Code meetup is to really get people together who are merging the field of art and technology to inspire each other to find new projects, new ways of working, and new ways of creating works of art. So we are experimenting with the medium at the moment because, of course, we're recording from separate locations with respect to the pandemic. So if you hear some noise in the background, please just bear with us. That is part of our normal life. I'm lucky enough to have with me today Agnes Bock, who's a researcher at MoMA specializing in immersive media. And uh, she's actually the founder of the Zipsing conference that we have uh, here in Budapest. And the third edition will be coming up this year in September. Uh, Aggie, how are you doing today? Thank you. I'm fine. It's a wonderful spring day. And I'm very glad that you invited me to this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, One thing that kind of ties in, you know, my, my own background is in filmmaking and storytelling as well. And. And we've talked a little bit here and there about storytelling and, and virtual reality and immersive media. Tell me a little bit about your doctor, because it sounds really interesting for me, this idea of fooling the mind, fooling the body a little bit. Like, what have you been working on? Oh, yeah, my uh, thesis is still my favorite uh, topic to talk about, even though I'm busy with it for almost five years. And now I'm just in the middle to actually wrap it up. But uh, I have a background in theater studies, mainly. And I was always looking at what theatre can bring us in terms of thrilling. I graduated in Romania, and when I moved to Budapest, I was going almost every evening to theatre. And I was looking, and I was in this dark room, and I looked at the stage, and for a while it was very funny. But after that, I realized I have basically almost no agency. And they started to bother me in that way, that I started to be very bored. Then I stopped to go to theatre each evening, Uh, On the other hand, I started to have friends because I was going out in the evenings. But uh, mainly I dropped this uh, field of uh, theatre. And then, like years later, I met someone who was telling me about an immersive theatre performance. This was, I think, in 2015. So the word immersion, immersive, was not such a buzzword as today. And he told me about a Danish-Austrian theatre company called Signa. And he told me, like, probably this is the stuff that I'm looking for. So I was very lucky that a year after I saw that they are performing in Vienna together uh, with my partner. We went there to see the performance and we thought, like, okay, it will last like three hours and then we can jump on the last train. But on the other hand, it lasted for five hours and it was not a traditional performance, but we entered a very, very big uh, uh, house. I mean, it's like a block of houses, like Bear has in Hungarian. And uh, it was super realistically, the set design was done super realistically. And uh, we were greeted as the visitors of a house where there are people living who feel inside themselves as dogs. And there are also fostering families who are taking care of these people. And we were spending their five hours with those people who were acting very in a naturalistic way. Even their body hair was left. And we could we could buy for them uh, this kind of special biscuit for dogs in the performance. We could throw to them. We could talk to them. We could wander around in this very, very big building. We could eat. We could drink. There were also uh, corners for cigarette breaks. And uh, after five hours, I left this uh, performance and my whole uh, vision of world was a little bit like, not straight, but it was a little bit like uh, not a straight line. So I needed some half an hour to put my senses back in order. 
And uh, since then, I know that this is what I'm really looking for, this thrill. So uh, I started soon after that my uh, PhD studies at Moholina University of Art and Design. And uh, initially, I was looking at how interactive digital technologies can create this kind of immersion in theater. Back then, the word immersion still was really not a buzzword. I needed like one and a half year to actually learn what is immersion. And I realized like this is what I'm looking for. Well, maybe you could, you could explain a little bit. What do you mean by immersion? Anyway? What does it mean for you? Currently, immersion for me, in my understanding, uh, means a sense of embodiment uh, that is created when you are surrounded by a special environment and when you also have this uh, feeling that something impossible is happening to you. What is very important about the term of immersion but that there are tons of uh, definitions because it's very widely used and also the researchers are coming from very various backgrounds. So there is not one fixed uh, definition for immersion. It's usually counted as the psychological state, like for example, the flow, the term of flow, uh, very similarly like the term of flow, uh, which was uh, coined by uh, and Mihai Mihai. Well, he's a well-known Hungarian kind of philosopher, researcher, I guess, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, so it's usually coined as a, a psychological state, which can be caused by several factors. And one is like, for example, the technological device that is usually understood as VR or video games. It can be also uh, triggered by the narrative, like narrative has really this power to grab us in. And uh, especially the epistemic immersion that was coined by Mary Law Ryan that talks about how the detective novels are the really the main genre for making And maybe later we will talk about this, but these detective novels, it's not a coincidence that detective novels are now so widespread and many creators are using it. And there is also another type of immersion that is based on our skills and they are using these skills so we can combat challenges. This is also, again, usually in video games when you have this uh, nice balance between uh, challenges and skills that you can fight and you can always get better. And um, this is a whole system, system that keeps you busy and uh, immersed. And uh, you've got a very particular uh, kind of focus on it as well, the use of magic in, in VR as well. Like, how did, how did that come about, Aggie? I just wanted to go to this back because I realized, like, uh, it's very nice to talk about immersive theatre, but actually, because immersive theatre in itself is a separate genre. It's, uh, of course, it's together with the word immersion, but immersive theatre is a theatre where there is no fourth wall, so you can get basically, in ideal cases, you can get in a direct touch with the, with the actors. And this kind of intimate spontaneity, which, which really made me to, to look more at this term. And what I felt when I have this very nice thrill, when I have these kind of experiences, that is very similar to something else. But for a very long time, I didn't know what is that that actually makes me really uh, to have this feeling. And once I was at an exhibition about the history of magic, it was in London at the Welcome Collection, and there I saw these old videos where they made these videos with the ghosts. I mean, of course, it was the uh, early way of visual effects. And uh, then I realized, like, hoppa, Everyone was looking at this kind of feeling of thrilling and marvel and wanted to feel some miracle that we also believe, but we also know that it is not true. And also at the same exhibition, I found a wonderful book by a, a contemporary researcher, Gustav Kuhn, who's also a magician. 
and he's writing very detailed about how magic can be actually used in neuroscience and in uh, studying brain. And this led me to the way to look at the, our craving for immersive experiences that is very similar to our craving 100 years ago and even today for magic performances. And also historically, it's very nice to look at it because uh, like I read journals from uh, Boston, for example, for 120 years ago. And there was also like 20, 30 medium events were each evening listed and people were looking like, hmm, to which one to go, which goes to see. And it's basically it's the same as, uh, as usually in the UK. They have many, many immersive or what they call immersive events. That's another thing. But there are many immersive events that we want to visit. And another very important aspect of it is the, the connection with technological and scientific research, which we also use in contemporary immersive installations. And that was also uh, very widespread. For example, the Royal uh, Polytechnic Institute in London, they always showcase this scientific, but a little bit interpreted as magic events. And uh, patents were presented as something magical. And this is basically what we also see today. It's interesting. I think that uh, magic is hard to represent, though, isn't it? Like you see it on television and there's a big difference between seeing magic in real life and seeing it on television. Because when you see it for real, it does feel like a, a miracle. And what made you choose then? Because uh, virtual reality is a field that you've really kind of uh, immersed yourself in as well. Tell us about how that came about. Like, tell me about how you chose this uh, particular uh, path of research as well. I uh, started to work with VR when I also started to work in Romania at the Sapienza University as a researcher. And that was uh, parallel with my doctoral studies. And while my doctoral studies, I was focusing more on theatrical side. Uh, I was also looking at this concept of immersion and then it came like okay let's look at vr because this is the uh, the research group in romania was was much more focused on moving images and when i looked at vr i knew immediately that uh, 360 movies are not my type because they pretty much use the traditional film dramaturgy or sometimes they try to use uh, gamified dramaturgy for example sounds coming from your uh, from behind you but it's an uncontrollable medium by the uh, interactive and more gamified, let's put it this way, version of uh, VR productions, they are much more, how to put it, tailor-made for VR. I mean, you can get into interaction with, with your environment. But from the moment that you are in this state, when you are totally immersed into this technological device that also allows you to get immersed and you can have like a direct response from your environment when you're interacting with it, and you can basically do anything. You can go through walls, you can fly. Of course, it depends on the content. But my main question was like, okay, we are here. And is there any kind of magical experience that we can have in VR? And uh, you just mentioned television, and it's very interesting. Like in the 80s, when they started to broadcast uh, magic shows on television, uh, they really focused that uh, it's one shot. It's showing sometimes from very, very close. So people have the feeling of they see something authentic. And it's also for magic, it's very important that it's, it's, it's in a way it's participative so that people don't feel like very alienated from it, but they can have a, they can, they can think that they can have a response. But is there anything like that in VR? So I started to think about that. 
and also together with uh, ex-students, now colleagues and co-workers with whom we are co-creating, we started to think like, okay, what could it be that it can mean something magical in VR? So we also started to work on a proof of concept production that would be an immersive theatrical VR production. And we also worked together uh, with the help of MOME. We got a little funding and also together with the Random Error Studio, where there are very fantastic guys who can deal with VR. And uh, so we arrived to make the proof of concept and the trailer. And then we went to pitching sessions, which was very uh, great. But uh, we always received back the feedback that hey, this is a one-to-one experience. We can't really fund you because it's very the outreach is very small. So currently, uh, we are working with an international team now on the concept to make it more uh, applicable for wider audience. And yeah, I hope it's going to work. Well, I was just talking about that project as well. I mean, it was, it, what was interesting about that, I thought, is, um, you know, and the idea of having agency, right? The idea of proper immersion, and if we kind of go back to the idea of narrative and we talk a little bit about, you know, the difference between 360 and VR, what do you think, the, is there a language now for, for VR? Is there, is there, because there's a language for cinema, but is there a language for VR? Should there be a language for VR? Oh, thanks for the question. Uh, I totally think that there should be. In my opinion, there are some subjects that could be more explored by VR creators. And one of it, which is very strongly connected to the definition of immersion that we discussed earlier, it's about the sense of embodiment. And that VR can, uh, can actually give you that extra sense of embodiment of feeling with someone else's body and being in someone else's body. And uh, this particularly, I mean that it's very interesting to feel or to be like in the body of one animal. And then that completely changes your senses. Or it's also interesting to be in the body of a tree. And we can see already very nice examples. For example, the UK-based company Marshmallow Laser Feast. They made wonderful uh, installations on it and also VR productions when you can see how flies are seeing the oxygen, for example. This is something on one side is very interesting. Currently at MoMA, we are also working on a production. It's also a proof of concept production where you can be a root and you can experience actually like, I don't know whether anyone thought like how is to be a root because you're underground, it's very dark but like how you can communicate, how you can reach out to other routes, because there is this wonderful, very wide network under, in, on the underground together with the mushrooms and all these animals are there. And that's a fantastic network. It's better than internet. And how to, how to actually make that sensible. That's already a fascinating idea for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, one of the things is even for scientific research, we, you know, we explore things that we can understand. Um, and if we can be something else, then we can see things in a different way and start to experience the world and find things that we don't know, right? So, but Certainly, even- it's a different kind of learning. It's a more embodied learning. However, I'm not sure if this is the right concept, but from my scientific research perspective, this is it. It's- it's just immersive learning. I heard about some other projects as well, not about you know experiencing life as a different person, as a different color, as a different gender, um, and and to experience life as somebody else is not something that we can do in any other art form. 
True. With this, like embodying someone else in VR, I, I think VR has to develop a bit more for that. Because uh, when you are experiencing to be someone else, it means that you should also inherit or learn about their memories and all the package who they are. It has several aspects. For example, you can't really be more in VR and watch an interactive VR story for more than 20-25 minutes. Otherwise, it becomes the headset is not there yet that we could wear it all day. You can't get that much information. And the second one is that uh, all the information what you can get in 20 minutes, it can't represent the complexity of someone. Of course, this also applies to animals and other beings that I mentioned before. But I think that's a very tricky part yet of the VR. But certainly, I mean, there are wonderful creators, I think, who are pushing this forward, like Noni de la Peña. And uh, she made some wonderful uh, productions on like how to feel, how to be in someone else's shoe by uh, living some various experiences that are, that are liminal experiences in a way. But still, uh, I would not call VR as the medium for empathy because uh, it has a long way to go and uh, empathy can be also used for for not so nice uh, uh, experiences as well. We can also see like how VR could be really exploited for dark tourism and like how this can raise also other ethical issues. There is also a very interesting uh, research side which is looking at uh, VR and its ethical use in documentary filmmaking. Certainly you have this sense of embodiment which makes you feel a bit more empathetic uh, in that situation. But the question is with who are you uh, identifying yourself for that 20 minutes? And what kind of uh, situations are you facing? And this can have less ethical or less well-thought scenarios as well. That's interesting because I think these are almost questions we've been asking about, about TV and cinema as well for a while, right? Now you have dark tourism and you mentioned detective shows and detective genres. Like that's, that's very, it's a very dark world if you want to get into that as well. And it's interesting those questions are coming up in a different way now with VR. Um, yes, I mean, because in one sense, uh, VR always wanted to come back in the last 20, 30 years and there was always a cycle when they were going up and then the investors did not want to put more money into its development. But now it seems, especially with the last uh, well-known VR headset that came out a couple of months ago, that finally it can have this breakthrough and more households can have a VR headset at home and they can have more content. And now it seems that maybe more content can be also put on various stores. Certainly, it gives you a more embodied feeling than in the television. On the other hand, it's also, we are still living this, uh, there is this very nice uh, term of uh, media of attraction. This was coined by Rebecca Rose. This is uh, directly coming from cinema of attraction. That's another media, now media archaeological term that was talking about how the movies and what films had an effect when they came to life and what uh, kind of like embodied effect did they have on the viewer. It was very immersive when you went in a darkened room and you were there and the train was coming. However, they say that's an urban legend that people were running away from the train when it was coming. But you can see very similar um, content for VR. Like when you first have the headset of VR, you try to play this uh, 
shop simulator or job simulators. And then you go on uh, this Luna Parkish uh, roller coaster <laughs> and you try your vertigo out. And this is very much similar when it uh, when the first uh, films arrived, and it's the same for VR. But I, I think uh, due because of the interactivity or the false sense of agency, sometimes this is a bit uh, more trickier. Also, the social VR platforms they enable us to to have a completely simulated life, and it it can be very addictive in a way, especially nowadays if you're all day home alone. Yeah, I can imagine that. And, and just watching, I have, I have two daughters and they're small, but their first experience with VR, they absolutely loved it and completely uh, you know, enjoyed the experience of being somewhere else, being inside a machine, you know, and even my daughter started to clean up inside the game. <laughs> she wanted to tidy up the space that she's in the little virtual shop. You know, which is, you know, so she's so immersed in it that it becomes, it's much realer for them in a way. Like, and, um, and I can imagine that it's getting more and more used now in the last year with us all being inside our own houses, the sense of escape that we need to have. Um, we're talking a little bit about, um, about games as well. That you, you were developing a game for the Open Society, is that right, as well? Yes, uh, we developed uh, this autumn, a game for Open Society Archive, Central European University. Did you say in four months you did, did it? Well, it's a bit less. I mean, That's, that's a short play time. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was a very short time and very intense time, but uh, I have wonderful colleagues who really made and who really worked day and night on it. Satmari Bendegus, Kovács Dorotya and uh, Heitzman Gordon. And also, we had a very big support from the side of OSHA, from Fanny Andrischak and Andres Ming. And I really think that it's important to mention their names because uh, it was one challenge was actually to make the 3D game. And the other challenge was that it had to be very high fidelity in terms of history. It takes place in 1986, the game. And uh, the aim of the game is to present this uh, challenging state of mind, let's put it this way, when you want to be part of the system and you want to fight the system. And there are no good answers. I mean, each behavior can be understood in its own context. And we wanted to show this contrast between these two contexts. So you can actually get into the skin of uh, two characters from 1986. Uh, one is a journalist and the other one is his nephew. And they are also uh, neighbors. You can actually find out a lot about history and what was going on in 1986. And at the end, uh, you have to make decisions. I don't want to be a spoiler, so this is why I'm just going to Okay. Will we be able to, to check it out, Aggie? Uh, yes, yes, certainly. We'll, we'll provide links at the end of the podcast, absolutely, for people who want to check out some of the things you've been talking about. Uh, so, sure, then it will be provided on the link. Great, so you should definitely go and check that out. It sounds interesting. Oh, in 1986 is such an interesting time as well here. That, that moment of change as well, that moment of uh, transformation uh, between 85 and, and uh, 1990. We chose specifically this year, I mean, originally we were looking at what happened in 89 and that was already very much preparing for the change. But 86 was still 
as far as I can see from here, not being as a historian, but it still seems like a time where anything can happen. Plus, uh, also that year, Chernobyl happened. These couple of days that the uh, game is taking place, uh, it's right after Chernobyl, because it was very important for us. The, the game is uh, actually for uh, teenagers between 14 and 18. And because the Chernobyl series already raised awareness about this period, so they can also have a reference. So we are also referring a lot to what caused Chernobyl in Hungary. So we are also focusing on that. Um, one other thing just to touch on as well is that the Zip Team conference uh, is coming up uh, in September again. Like, What can you tell us about, the, about this year's conference? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, it's actually, we just published a call two weeks ago. And uh, we really hope that it will happen offline at the uh, Mohalina University of Art and Design. It will also focus on the interactive digital storytelling, as it always does. But uh, I think because of this, we can't erase this last year from our experience. So what we are also looking at very much is like how, um, how interactive digital storytelling can actually embrace uh, speculative design and the future forecasting. And um, we are also looking for creators, researchers who are dealing on the, this edge of these two disciplines. And we are also very much looking for other design fiction objects that uh, have a narrative character. So we, we just published a call. We hope to reach as uh, many as we can. And uh, it's also, we have now a nice collaboration. I'm part of an international research group called Interactive Digital Narratives for Complexity Representation. And we will have a two-day session before the conference. And then hopefully we will merge the two research networks. So again, I just hope that, that, that everything can happen offline and we can finally meet. It would, be, it would be great to actually have people meet in real life. It was one of the things I really liked about the conference when I, when I went was that it's a great place to just meet people who are interested in the same kind of world. And uh, it's, it's fascinating the people that you can accidentally bump into. It's one of the great things about conferences like that. Yes, thanks for coming. <laughs> of course, yeah. Happy, happy to, hopefully, hopefully once again we'll meet, we'll meet in real life then. So, Aggie, what, what do you see happening in the next few years like for immersive media? What, would you, what can you imagine uh, being the future for researchers like yourself? It's actually one of my part, if you would have asked me one year ago, I would just bring very wide ideas where this can go. Now, I, I think there are also wide ideas around even now. It's in one way, it's even more wider, but less, uh, less tactile, let's put it this way. So what we can see that the industry clearly suffers in many ways, like immersive theater, there could not be many performances due to the restriction. They had to move very much online. The video conference tools are not there yet to respond to everything, as we can also see latency is still a very big problem. So uh, I don't know and I can't see me personally whether this is a good or bad moment for the whole industry because uh, it's, it's, in many ways it's just a restriction, restriction that we have to, to see each other on the screen that is not really have industry in a very broad term to develop. I don't know if I, as, as an immersive media researcher, I really 
want to research these kind of performances that are taking place on video conferencing tools. There are also very nice other initiations where they try to connect people and create a system where various people can connect via a framed fictional situation. I just participated last week on a performance that actually put me in touch with someone else from another country and we kind of had this very intimate conversations without knowing who the other one is. And then at the end, there was a very big pitching forum. So in that term, I'm I'm not so optimistic. On the other hand, I'm very optimistic because in the last year, I had the chance to participate at various hackathons where I could work with people with who I would have never met if I would have had to travel. In three weeks, there will be a pitching session where uh, together with an international team, uh, we are going to pitch on our proof of concept VR production that will be a theatrical VR production. And that is based on IM Forster's uh, Machine Stops, which I highly recommend to everybody because even though it was written in the early 20th century, it's, it's like it's our days now. And we are working on a VR production that is based on the world, which is there. It's not kind of an adaptation. And uh, this, is, this brought for me so much learning and I'm so happy about it. So I don't know where immersive media is going. The interface is not disappearing as one year ago I would have thought. It's there and uh, we have to live with this interface, but uh, let's hope what the next year will bring. Well, I hope so. I hope it's definitely interesting that we have now, we're, we're used to being on screens and, and it's true, I think the same thing that we, we have um, we have more contact with people internationally on a day-to-day -day basis. What I hope, I certainly hope, because I, I mean, my field is sort of interactive media as well. When we talk about improvisation theater, we're kind of talking in this similar-ish world in some ways. That, um, you know, being forced to change how you do things can, can make you examine why we do them and, and are there other ways that we can even be better? Certainly, you're like, I mean, improvisation is the thing that I consider, that I frame more like... Uh, that creates intimacy and this spontaneity, which is basically the magic in what I'm looking at. And so I really hope that you can get back to work and real life so there is more magic in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Aggie. Thanks very much for joining us today. It was really, it was really interesting chat. Like, and, and I would encourage anybody who has the chance, uh, online or offline, to come join uh, the Zipline conference in September for sure, and to check out the game link, uh, which will be uh, attached to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, Declan. Thank you for joining us at uh, Creative Code Budapest podcast. Uh, thanks especially to Rita Eperyashi for being our commander-in-chief, uh, for our engineer Vladimir Rashev, and of course for uh, Agnes Bach for joining us on the podcast today. Join us next time.